Hello and welcome. I'm Alex. And I'm Nikki. And this is our podcast, Journals, Journals of, of a, a Journalist. journalist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's... Alex, our story today is about a time that I had to go undercover in order to oh. nab ivory and rhino horn smugglers. It started with a murder. Jeez, okay. <laughs> yes. And it actually became probably the most dangerous story I have ever been involved in. But at the time, I had no idea. And in fact, even while I was doing the story, I didn't know how dangerous this was. It was only a lot later that I discovered exactly the risks I had taken. Um, and as I got more involved, it became more and more complicated. And at the end of it, it just fizzled out and ended up with nothing. Ah, oh, okay. But now, in order to, to tell the story properly, we have to go back to the year 1989. And it's very important to give a background as to what was happening in the world at that time. Yes. It was a very, very dramatic year. This was probably the height of the Cold War. Um, and the whole world is in the grip of the Cold War. Now, you know what the Cold War is, hey? Yeah, the big American shooty thing. You could <laughs> you could call it that. In essence, what it was, was the Cold War was an ideological battle between communism and capitalism. Uh, okay. And communism was represented by Russia and China, and capitalism was represented by Europe and America. Okay. And what would happen, this goes back to World War II, when after World War II, communism was rising in the East, and because of the turbulence that had been created by World War II, the communists saw this as a very good way to go into countries that were trying to rebuild after World War II, and they would introduce the idea of communism. And uh, the American side of things and the European powers did not want communism because they saw it as being a very repressive regime. So, and it's called the Cold War because there were never any battles being fired. It was all about espionage and traitors and subterfuge and spies and all sorts of things. It all went on undercover. And why this is important to us is because at that stage, Africa was busy emerging during the 70s, 60s and 70s. It was busy emerging from colonialism. And the biggest problem with colonialism was that it had imposed a government on top of a lot of countries that were made up of smaller tribes. Okay. And so when the colonialists left the country, they left behind this leadership vacuum. And all these warring tribes in these countries, which had been completely artificially constructed, they didn't want to be subjugated by another tribe. So all of a sudden there were all these civil wars that popped up all over Africa okay. after these countries had become independent and they'd shaken off colonialism. And the Russians and the Chinese saw that this was... Should I start that again? Continue. So you had all these African countries which had recently become independent, and they were made up of these tribal areas that were not happy being thrown together um, as a result of colonialism. So you had these power vacuums which had arisen. And so there were elections... And a lot of the time what happened was because of the elections, the Western powers, the capitalist powers, 
they decided that they wanted to install a government that was sympathetic to them. But then the Russians and the Chinese decided that they were going to arm the rebels who would uh, then yeah. fight against okay. the government. Sure. Yeah. So Africa became a battleground. It became a war by proxy, as they said. So you had the Americans, the CIA, the British MI6, etc., fighting the KGB and the uh, Chinese intelligence agencies. It's got a name, but I can't pronounce the name, and I'm not even going to try, <laughs> okay. because yeah, fair the enough, Chinese fair languages enough. are very yeah. difficult to, to pronounce. So you had all these shadowy groups operating in Africa, destabilizing the continent, arming the rebels, supporting the puppet governments, etc. It was an incredibly turbulent time, and it was all about Africa's resources. Because Africa is an incredibly rich continent with natural resources, minerals, forests, um, all of this was very, very attractive to these superpowers. So there was this huge war going on in Africa undercover. Okay. So every single country in Earth was involved somehow in these wars in Africa. So um, it was... And, and then, of course, in South Africa ourselves, we were at the height of apartheid. And it was the dying days of the system. And the government had a dirty tricks campaign against its uh, what it saw as its opponents. You had assassination squads. Um, and then South Africa also got involved in the war, the proxy war in Africa. So they were fighting the so-called terrorists in Angola and Mozambique who were armed by the Russians. And it was all about this idea. It was a so-called ideological conflict between the West and the East. But it was also about who got to own the resources of Africa. So this was all going on under the surface. And this was an era, 1989 particularly, it was hot. It was spy versus spy, it was murders, assassinations, international intrigue, kings and presidents becoming involved, shadowy organizations, front companies, organized crime, the mafia, it was a free-for-all. The Chinese triads, the Russian government, there were diamonds and drugs and weapons and people smuggling and wildlife smuggling and everything. And into this absolute hotbed, I came skipping along. <laughs> Naturally. Yes. Naturally. Having no idea what I was getting myself into, but with obviously the best of intentions. And it all started on May the 1st, when a man by the name of David Webster was murdered. He was shot in a drive-by shooting. He was an academic, an anthropologist. He just returned from the nursery, how mundane. He was unpacking okay. plants from the back of his car. A car drove up, shot at him through the window, and then drove off. Wow. Um, and he was, he was a completely inoffensive character. Nobody could understand oh. why David Webster had to be murdered. He was an academic. He was an anthropologist. He was opposed to apartheid, but he wasn't a diehard activist. Yeah, so, he wasn't. So, so one of the theories that arose was that a lot of the work he did was in northern KZN. Um, where there were, there were, he was doing anthropological work up there near the border. And so one of the theories was that while he was working up there near the Mozambican border, he had stumbled across some secret that the state or some, organize, oh, okay. some organization wanted to keep secret. And that's why he'd been killed. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, one of the theories was that he had stumbled across a, a smuggling route for environmental wildlife trade. 
Now, at that stage, I was quite well known as an environmental reporter because, as you'll hear in other podcasts of the environmental reporting I've been doing, and I decided I wanted to investigate this particular link. And um, through my contacts, I got hold of a parliamentarian called Rupert Lorimer, and he was the Democratic spokesman for the environment. And I was also put in touch with a journalist by the name of Devet Portgitter, because he'd been exposing a lot of stories in the press. And there was a lot of this that was coming out, bits and pieces that were coming out. And uh, so let's go and have a look at a bit of a background as to how this situation had developed. Okay. Now, the previous year, in August 1988, there was an American environmental investigator who was with an international organization called Monitor. And he published a report in which he accused the South African government of colluding with poachers and smugglers. Now, according to the report he published, the South African military, the SADF, were colluding in a huge poaching operation in Angola and Mozambique, where they were shooting wildlife out of military helicopters and from military trucks. And they were trucking the ivory and the rhino horn and the other wildlife products and basically anything else they could find. They were shipping them through the borders and into the Walfus Bay and the Richards Bay harbors. And they were shipping them out in crates, ironically called dental equipment. Okay. <laughs> which, if it was genuinely thought of, it was a macabre it joke. Was, yeah, it Elephant was, tusks or dental equipment. But anyway, that was the substance of this explosive report. And that seemed to have opened quite a can of worms because a short while later, the Star newspaper in Johannesburg published an interview with Jonas Savimbi, who was the leader of a rebel group called UNITA in Angola. And this was one of the rebel groups that had uh, was opposing the government. And there were a number of them. And some of them were funded by the Russians, some of them were funded by the Americans and us. And UNITA was, Jonas Savimbi and UNITA were funded by the South African government. But not entirely, because as he said in this interview, they weren't getting all the money from the government. They were repaying the government by, by supplying them with ivory, diamonds, timber, and other resources, all highly clandestine. They were being smuggled out. And then these were being shipped overseas and sold on the black market. Okay. And that money was being used to fund the war. Jeez, okay. Sure. Yeah. Now, Angola used to be a Portuguese colony. When the, when the Portuguese withdrew... As I explained earlier, the civil war broke out between all the different ethnic divisions and the factions. This civil war went on for 27 years, yeah. from 1975 to 2002. And it only really ended when Jonas Savimbi died um, in 2002. Um, so you had this war going on between communists and anti-communists, between the government and the rebels, etc. And the irony was that Angola is an incredibly rich country in minerals and resources. Yeah. But yeah. instead of these riches being used for the betterment of for the people, development exactly, yeah. they were being used to fund a war, which well, was very, kill. very tragic. Yeah. yeah. Round about that time as well, there was a lady called Brenda who approached the Sunday Times in Johannesburg, and she related, she'd had a bust-up with her boyfriend called David Rogers, 
and she went to the papers and told them how her boyfriend had been involved in rhino horn and, and ivory smuggling through South Africa for Chinese organized crime. <laughs> she must have been very angry at him. She was very angry uh, with him and she decided to blow the whistle. And in fact, yeah. after that, she had to go into hiding because sure, now she yeah. knew they were after yeah. her. Um, now, the Sunday Times realized that this was actually quite a big story. And they contacted Tibet Porthitter because they knew he'd already done things along these lines. And he wrote that story. And he decided then this was going to become his crusade. Um, so there was a lot of publicity. There were reports of high-ranking South African politicians going up into the bush in military aircraft. And they were having shooting parties with lots of drink and young women. And they would go out in military vehicles and just shoot everything that moved. And it was just killing it was terribly Shame, depraved. Yeah. And, the, and the big scandal here was on the surface, South Africa was being held up worldwide as a country that really looked after its wildlife. Um, yeah, and it was yeah. supposedly leading the world in conservation strategies because you had Dr. Ian Player, who had just brought the white rhino back. You had Dr. Ian Player, who just brought the, right wine, the white rhino back from the edge of extinction. And the black rhino was being conserved. And there were all these this conservation work being done. So South Africa was being held up as this amazing country with this conservation record. Yeah. And in the meantime, the government was going off and having wild shooting parties yeah. and working with the Chinese mafia and, and the organized crime in order to smuggle goods. Yeah. So it was a tremendous scandal. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, so and at that time as well, there was a newspaper editor in Namibia. The newspaper was called the Ventuk Observer, and he was also publishing a lot of stories. So there was a lot of publicity, and there was a lot going on, and it was very much a, a topic, a hot topic. And because of all this publicity, the head of the South African chapter of the Endangered Wildlife Fund, John Ledger, he was agitating that the government must set up a specialized investigation unit to deal with environmental crime. And his spokesman or his champion in Parliament was this Democratic Party spokesman, Rupert Lorimer. Um, and as a result of this lobbying by John Ledger and Rupert Lorimer in 1989, a unit was set up called the Endangered Species Protection Unit. It was headed by a Colonel Pit Latechan. And he used to be with the stock theft unit going to retrieve stolen cattle, but he was passionate about conservation. And so he was the obvious person to, to, um, to head up this organization. And the mandate was to investigate and prosecute environmental crimes. So this is the background. Now, okay. just to make Let's it even it. more interesting, there was an unofficial clandestine anti-poaching operation that was being set up that was called Operation Lock. And this was privately funded by Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. Sure, it was okay. being run in conjunction with the Endangered Wildlife Trust. And the people who were running this organization were highly trained ex-soldiers from Britain. A lot of them came from the SAS, which is the military, air, uh, the specialized air services, which was a highly specialized military unit that was set up during World War II under the leadership of Sir David Sterling. And these were feared. I mean, they were tremendously hardened and expert fighters. They joined up with the Salu Scouts, 
which was also a highly specialized paramilitary unit out of Rhodesia, which is what Zimbabwe was then called. And they were fighting a bush war as well. Um, so you had these tremendously well-trained soldiers. You had mercenaries. Um, and they were all coming together privately. Nobody knew about this. They were all undercover. And what they were trying to do was set up frameworks and networks in Southern Africa. They wanted to infiltrate the smuggling networks and then gradually take them over and shut them down. And if this meant assassinating the people, well, it was the way it goes. You have, to, you have to, do. to do what you have to do. Yeah. So they were doing that. Now, that just complicated things even more. And um, what was quite complicated about this, as Piet Latergan pointed out later, he said that even though they were good soldiers, there's a big difference between police work, which is investigation and gathering clues and so on, mm -hmm. and soldiering, which is basically people who taught to fight. Yes. So Operation Lock was a little bit controversial. In fact, it wasn't even a little bit controversial. It was very yeah, controversial. I can imagine it would be very controversial. So that was just another player on the scene. And then there was a freelance undercover investigator called Brian Davies, and I remember that name okay, because he used to be in the Rhodesian army. He was an explosive expert, explosives expert, and he was a bit of a wild card. He was working on his own and he was going undercover and he was sort of working in conjunction with all these other different things and having contact with them, but under deep cover. And he was trying to infiltrate these rhino horn and ivory smuggling and poaching gangs. Okay, so let's just recap here. So you've got all of this. You've got spy versus spy. You've got the Cold War. You've got the proxy war in Africa. You've got the assassination squads in South Africa. You've got the military being involved in poaching and smuggling. You've got the networks with the Chinese triads and the Russian KGB and the mafia. And here I come skipping mm -hmm. along. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh. I want to find out who killed David Webster and why. Yes. Okay. All right, now to start off with, okay. now my first contact was Rupert Lorimer, who was very, very active in putting all of these things together, and he suggested that I get hold of Brian Davies and talk to him about what he was doing and also the background to his work. But now, Brian Davies was deep undercover. To all intents and purposes, okay, yeah. he didn't <laughs> exist. And it's one of those things where you get given a phone number, and you dial the number and you say a code word. <laughs> and then 15 minutes later, Brian would phone you back from another number and give you a number to phone. And then he would hang up or he would tell me to go to a phone booth or something. And then he would phone that phone booth. It was like that. Um, and <laughs> okay, then I sure. would have to phone him back. Sure, so it was, yeah. it was a case of one thing after another. Really, really very, very serious. Yeah. Leads. And we made an arrangement to meet at a house in North Riding. Now, North Riding in those days was a semi-rural suburb north of Johannesburg, quite far out of town. And it was actually quite notorious because it was out of town and it was rumored a lot of things went on there that okay. were not strictly legal. Okay. There were things like illegal bars, shabines, illegal activity. So it was kind of... So it was kind of associated with, with a lot of dodgy stuff. 
And it was quite a way off to, to get there. Um, and I knew vaguely about these things, but I didn't know too much about it. And also the directions that Brian gave me didn't give me an address. And you must also remember there was no GPS in those days. Yes. Yeah. So he didn't give me an address. All he said was, you get onto this road, you travel for four kilometers, you turn left, your first turn right, etc., etc. You drive for two kilometers, you turn left, and then you come to a house. And those were his directions. Okay. And the idea of this was that I would never be able to find the place again. So I came to the house, and there was a high wire fence with an electric gate, and I drove the gate open, and I drove in, and there was this huge empty house, um, but it was huge. Um, it was double story, and downstairs there didn't appear to be any furniture apart from just tables and chairs. Okay. So it probably was some kind of an illegal bar, a shabeen of some sort. Um, and the downstairs consisted of two huge rooms that were connected or they, were, they had a wall between them but there were archways and windows through the wall so while you're sitting in one room you can actually see into the other room through the okay. archways and the yeah. windows and so on anyway so I met with Brian um, he knew who I was kind of knew who he was we recognized each other I sat down now he was sitting with his back to the other room and I was sitting facing the other room and he started talking to me quite quietly about the work he was doing and the, um, the, the infiltration he'd done, etc., etc. But in the other room, almost like I was looking at theatre, there was a table with a lady standing behind it and a group of women all sitting in chairs like they were at the theatre, you know, like okay, theatre yeah, seating. And the lady at the table was obviously doing some kind of a demonstration, oh, okay. like a Tupperware party. But I realised that these were sex toys. So okay. here I was trying to concentrate on what Brian was telling me and over his shoulder in this brightly lit room through the window, I'm seeing this lady hold up a bright pink dildo and say something uh. like, this is our Rough Rider model and the blue dolphin, oh, no. the blue dolphin uh. and things. And I was, I was completely transfixed. <laughs> And I yeah, wasn't I allowed imagine. to take notes. He told me I'm not allowed to write anything down. Yeah, yeah. But the upshot of this was that after the interview, I couldn't remember, remember anything. a single thing he had said. Um, oh, no, while I was no. driving home, I was trying to remember what he'd actually told me. And I cannot remember a single sentence he told me. So I got back. And now I'm too embarrassed to admit that that whole thing was a complete uh, crock. Um... <laughs> And anyway, the information word. that he had given me, I had no context for it. So I don't think I would have been able to use it much okay, anyway because least, I couldn't use the information. I couldn't use his name. I couldn't interview him or anything. So he gave me a little bit of background, which I think must have sunk in anyway. But, but that, was, that was a big problem. So that didn't really come to anything. But my next target was a company that had been identified as a front company for the military. And it was called Frama Intertrading. And the head of this company was a man by the name of Arlindo Meyer. Now, this company had a contract with a defense force. And they were supposed to be supplying goods and, and food through to the military that were fighting in Mozambique and Angola. And so they had all these trucks. And they would drive up to the military camps with mealy meal and powdered milk and sugar and oil and all those kind of things. But it was alleged that on the way back, 
They were bringing consignments of ivory, rhino horn, animal skills, tropical animal skins, tropical hardwood, diamonds, uh, cobalt, all sorts of things were being smuggled out things. again. Yes. And that was the report, was that they were going in there with goods for the military, for which they were being paid, yeah. and then they would come out with all this smuggled stuff. And the I was told that the border officials were instructed that Frama trucks were not to be stopped or searched. There was a whistleblower who said that he had ordered a truck stop and he'd found things in the truck that weren't supposed to be there, and then he was immediately instructed if you want to keep your job you will just keep quiet and let the yeah, truck if go you wanna live, just if you want to live yes look away but now not being content with simply getting paid a lot of money to provide food and bring back all the contraband Frama had decided that they were going to rob the army so they were okay over over billing so what they would do is they would say we're going to take a hundred thousand rands worth of food up to Angola, but they would only take 80,000 rands worth of food, but they would bill for 100,000. Okay. And okay. then when the army pointed out that only 80,000 rands worth of food had actually arrived, they would say, okay, they'll make it up in the next consignment, but they wouldn't. They'd short yeah. them again. Okay. So they kept what they call rolling over the payments. So they would get paid in full, but they would under-supply when they were going okay. to deliver the stuff. Okay. And by the time I got involved, it was alleged that they already owed the army three and a half million yeah. rand oh, wow. in short Gosh, payments. Wow. And in those days, that was a lot of money. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of money. So I had this mad idea that I would go and interview Arlindo Meyer at his <laughs> office on the East Rand. And, okay. you know, with no camera or notebook or anything, I would just wander in there and ask him just a couple of questions. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not 100% certain what I thought was going to happen. You know, part of me thought, maybe I'll just go in there, ask a couple of questions, and he just confesses everything to me, and I've <laughs> okay. got it. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea was that I would have a hidden microphone, and I would go in there, no notebook, no crew, nothing, just ask a couple of questions, and even if he didn't confess to me, hopefully he would let something slip because he thought he was off the record, and we could use this as evidence to then go after him. That was the idea. So we... So I was there with the crew in the crew van, and I got mic'd up. I had a, a, um, a transmission pack attached, it was taped to my back. These things were quite large. You didn't have many yeah. electronics in those days, so this was quite big. It was about the size of two cigarette packets, and it was quite heavy. And that was taped to my back, and then I had the microphone under my clothes, and it was taped to my chest. And this was all quite uncomfortable as well, because yeah. you got all the sticky tape on your skin. So... Um, and it was all quite big. So um, we arrived and we parked and I had this, this communication pack taped to my back and held up by the waistband of my skirt. And I walked into the office where I was nicely greeted and I went in and sat down. And as I did that, it all came loose and started slipping down my back. I know. And then I it know. got wedged in my panties. I know. And this made me very uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. So I am trying to ask questions, you know, deep penetrating questions of this crook who is being very, very polite to me and answering the questions, but not really answering the questions, just talking yeah, just about what a privilege it is to serve the country and supply the goods, etc. but nothing like that. And I was so distracted by the fact that my microphone was coming loose and the transmission pack was coming loose and I couldn't really concentrate on the uh, questions. Mm. 
And then I thought, now what happens if I have to get up? Maybe this thing will fall through my skirt and fall out the bottom of my clothes. <laughs> yeah, everything will be ruined. And my cover will be blown. And, you know, you, I might get into trouble. Yeah. So then I sat and had a cup of tea and a, and a lemon cream biscuit, which mm -hmm. I remember very distinctly. And we had this very civilized chat, which, me, which told me absolutely nothing. And then I was escorted back to the front office and I went back to the, the van. Um, the crew were very, very worried because what I didn't know was that the moment I walked into the office, they lost the signal. I know. So they didn't hear a thing. I know. And while I was chatting and having tea and biscuits with Arlindo Meyer, this big crook, yeah. they got nothing and they thought I'd been kidnapped and was being held and oh, tortured yeah. and had a truth drug administered to me in the basement. <laughs> so they, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know uh, whether they must go in after me or call the cops or go and get the army or yeah, whatever. Uh, so at the end of the day, once again, it also came to nothing. It was a lot of stress and hassle, uh, yeah. but we got nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. Now, in the meantime, Operation Lock had fizzled out. It had been exposed by a Reuters journalist, and it was controversial from the very beginning because it was run by soldiers, not by police. There were questions being asked about rhino horn that they'd taken in order to set up a sting operation, and the rhino horn had now gone missing. There were questions over its real motives and whether it really was an environmental action group or whether it was actually a clandestine government spy operation by MI6. So that had pretty much fallen apart. Um, and it looked to me, I was getting worried now because I'd spent a lot of time on this investigation. It's actually just getting nowhere. Mm. So then I had a word with Pit Latuchan from the ESPU, the Endangered Species Protection Unit, and they were busy with a project called Operation Stingray, Stingray which was to investigate smuggling routes through the Kruger. And the thing with the smuggling route is that once you've got a smuggling route, you don't just use it for one thing. You use it for everything. Yeah. So the smuggling route would be used for wildlife, for weapons, for plants, for drugs, for people, for cars, pots and pans, beds, anything that people would want to carry without taking through the border post, they would use on the smuggling route. And there were allegations that the mafia was involved in this lot of smuggling as well. So along with Colonel Latuchan, we went to the game ranger's house who was heading up these patrols. His name was Sam Furry, and he was heading up the anti-poaching and the smuggling patrols. And that night we went out late to, with our torches to go in, and, and the route wasn't very far from his house. We were able to walk there. And he said that sometimes they can even hear the smugglers if they talk loudly or if there's sure, a vehicle, yeah, they could even wow. hear them. But the idea was that we would go and patrol and see if we could intercept some of these. And um, it was a well-worn route. We could actually see the vehicle tracks. We could see the footprints, etc. But our luck, it was a bright moonlit night. Oh, yeah. And apparently that's not good for smugglers. No, so we again walked up and down all night, but there was absolutely nothing. It looks like the smugglers had taken the night off and there was no action. And Sam told us afterwards that that was the nature of the work. Um, you never knew when the route was being used or not. There didn't seem to be really any organization around it. So he said, maybe we must just come back later when the conditions would be better and maybe spend a little bit more time. But then a few weeks later, he was killed by an elephant, I heard. Oh, no. And my immediate thought was this was dirty tricks and he'd been assassinated. But yeah. no, there was an eyewitness there. In fact, he died a hero because he had been escorting somebody in the park on foot and they had been charged by an elephant 
and he was reluctant to fire his gun. You're supposed yeah. to fire twice. You fire once to warn the elephant, and the second time you, you fire to kill or wound Shoot, the elephant. Yeah. yeah. And apparently he shot the first time, and the elephant ignored the shot and kept coming. And apparently he could not bring himself to shoot oh, the elephant. Shame. And the elephant killed him. So wow. he died a hero and it was a brave end for a brave man. Um, wow. And at this stage, I was actually ready to give up. It didn't look like there was going to be too much to come of my story. There were too many threads. The story was too large. So much information was deep, deep secret. I didn't get to know enough. Um, so I decided, okay, that's it. I'm not going to continue. The anti-poaching unit continued. The ESPU continued. Colonel Pitlatechon headed it up until he retired. Okay. Um, during its existence, the ESPU had a number of successes. In fact, it had a 90% conviction rate. It smashed a number of ivory smuggling rings, both here and in, in both in this country and across the world. It exposed the smuggling of reptiles. There was a huge network of reptile smuggling. Okay. Um, yeah. But wow. then, unfortunately, after 1994, all the specialist units in the police were closed down. They were disbanded. Sure. Yeah. Like the child protection unit, the environmental. So all these specialist units were disbanded and closed down, which was a huge problem because it removed policemen who'd had specialized knowledge they were particularly yeah. trained in a specific kind of law enforcement and they had a passion for their subject so unfortunately that espu came to an end um, but even though i had abandoned my story the revelations continued because an adventurer called anthony white he admitted in about 1992 that he'd been smuggling several tons of ivory through Jeez, south africa oh, sure um, Carte Blanche did a television story, the Discovery Channel did a whole 13-part series. But by 1995, this constant publicity caused a commission to be set up, the Kumleben Commission, which finally proved for once and for all what we'd known all along. It was all true. The South African army had been involved for years in poaching and smuggling in order to fund the wars in Mozambique and Angola. The commission was scathing about Operation Lock, and its military, paramilitary anti-poaching operations. It praised the ESPU. Um, Operation Lockett said it had been useful because it had at least set up certain networks which could be taken over by the police and used. Um, and then shortly after the Kumleben Commission published its report, Devet Portgitter wrote his own book, Contraband, where he tells the whole story. And it would have caused a sensation yeah. Except that the country was caught up so much in the death squad revelations and the new government. And, and just a whole change. A whole change. The entire country changed. And the saddest thing of all was all of that went largely unnoticed. And the final thing is it also turned out that David Webster's murder had nothing to do with it. Or at least uh, it wasn't the main yeah. reason why he was murdered. He was killed by a state security operative called Ferdy Barnard. An assassin. He was part of the government CCB, a state-sponsored hit squad. Um, he was found guilty of the murder. He confessed. Sure, wow. He was imprisoned, sure. and he was only released two years ago. Jeez, yeah. After sure. serving twenty years. Yeah. So yeah. it's possible years. that David Webster did uncover a smuggling route through the Kruger, or through Mozambique, but that's not what got him killed. He was killed simply because 
he was a nuisance. Shame. And the saddest thing of all, in closing, is that you think of the thousands of animals that were killed in order to pay for a war that killed that people. That killed even more people, yeah. yeah. Africa's civil wars were all funded by wildlife poaching, by diamonds, by minerals, by natural resources. All of these things could have been sustainably used to help the people of the country, but instead they were used for destruction and suffering and violence. So it was really a very, very dark time. But, of course, at the time I knew nothing about this. So yep. I just went in after some crooks, not knowing what I was really about. Wow, what a, what a story. <laughs> I always say that. Um, sure, that was quite a twisty story. Thank you for listening. What? No, hang thank, on, stop. Thank you for listening. Oh, you say that. You do the outro. <laughs> thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this crazy episode and come back for more, even worse episodes. Let's see what happens next. Um, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. We have Instagram, which is at Journals of a Journalist. And we also have a Twitter, which is at Journals of a... You can send us an email on journalsofajournalist at gmails.com. And we'll see you for the next episode. Bye.